0: The reading this morning is from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like a Jew? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: Good morning, and uh, welcome to Christ Community, Leewood Campus. Uh, I'm Tom, and uh, I have the joy of being a part of our teaching team across our campuses, and uh, it's great to have you with us this morning. I'd like to begin this morning's message, maybe a little different. I'd like to ask you a question. Is that okay? Uh, is there anyone here who doesn't look back at their life with a sort of angst and remember mistreating another person? Maybe that person was a family member, a stranger, a colleague, a classmate, Even though we knew it wasn't right, but we did it anyway. Anybody like me out there? See, rather, whether it is a small thing that has small consequences or a large thing that has large consequences, it seems to me that hypocrisy is woven into the very frayed fabric of broken humanity. I was reminded of this this past week in a Wall Street Journal article, and maybe you saw it, regarding Dr. Larry Nasser. That name has become quite familiar across the nation. He served as the team physician for the USA Elites women gymnastics team. For years, Dr. Nasser used his profession and position of trust to allegedly, and it seems true, to allegedly sexually molest more than 200 women gymnasts. A profession that historically has been framed in the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm. And we read of Dr. Nasser's evil actions and his glaring hypocrisy We do not find words that capture our moral repugnance at his unconscionable conduct. But let me just say, it's not merely the profession of medicine where we see hypocrisy. Hypocrisy traffics in every level of the halls of government, every corridor of business, education and the arts. And tragically, All too often, hypocrisy traffics in the profession of clergy. Last week, the Chicago Tribune ran an extensive article exposing a highly influential evangelical pastor who has been a strong, outspoken proponent of empowering women, but now is being accused of a long history of abusing power within his own workplace. Let me ask you, what do you think is the most damaging accusation of Christians and the church? Maybe there are several candidates, but can I suggest to you, it's my hunch, that the most damaging in the witness of Christ is hypocrisy. Sometimes it is an unfair stereotype of the church, but it speaks to the truth that to all people of faith, that what we say we believe and how we behave needs to be consistent if our faith is to be deemed authentic and persuasive to others. It is not incidental that Jesus, perhaps most intensely or vociferously confronts the sin of hypocrisy, particularly religious hypocrisy. Why was it that Jesus had such a strong, visceral hatred and repugnance for religious hypocrisy? Could it be that religious hypocrisy is perhaps the most blinding and damning Our word hypocrisy comes from the Greco-Roman world, our English word, from the Greek idea of actors on a stage who wore masks that covered up their true identity and allowed them to present themselves to the world in a very different identity. So, hypocrisy became this wider metaphor capturing living life with a mask. That is, presenting ourselves to others as something we are really not inside. Hypocrisy raises its ugly head when there is a fundamental glaring gap that exists between what we know to be true and how we live. That is, this inconsistency between belief and behavior. Our text this morning confronts us with this reality. It shines an illuminating and, yes, disturbing light on the glaring hypocrisy of an early church leader. Not the who's that, but the who's who. His name was Peter. And this morning, looking through the lens of Peter's story, we are going to see how the gospel confronts hypocrisy head on. So, if you brought a Bible, I hope you'll turn with me to the book of Galatians, and we are going to be looking at chapter 2. Last week, Pastor Andrew opened this book, and we learned a very important bedrock truth that when we add to the gospel, it ruins the gospel. Now, on the heels of that, in the flow of this book's literary progression, is a second truth we must discover. And that is, if we add to the gospel, we become hypocrites. Now, this text and much of Galatians is a brilliant text that often can be seen as dense, In its theological formulation. So I would like this morning to frame this message around three questions. I think they'll help us have greater clarity. And if you're taking notes or listening, these three questions are the progression of our thoughts this morning. The first question we want to address is how, or you could say how on earth, how did Peter fall into hypocrisy? Secondly, how does the gospel confront Peter's hypocrisy? And perhaps... To each one of us, how does the gospel confront my hypocrisy and your hypocrisy? So, you ready? First question. How does the gospel, or how did Peter fall into hypocrisy? Look at me at verse 11 as we open this text. In verse 11, we read, but when Cephas, that's just another name for Peter, so, he came to Antioch, I opposed him, and the text says, I got in his face. Okay, it's very literal. I got in Peter's face because he stood condemned. Now, we noticed last week that the apostle has a different literary tone in this letter. He confronts Peter and he spares no punches. To understand more of the texture of what these words mean, we need to grasp a little of Peter's backstory. So let's think a minute, if you'll walk with me back to the first century in Peter's sandals. Peter grew up in a very tight-knit, homogenous Jewish culture where the Old Testament Scriptures given by God were revered, taught, and practiced in incredible detail, including very specific dietary guidelines. Now, while he was immersed in this tight-knit, homogenous Jewish culture, he also lived in a broader Greco-Roman world, and he was a part of a people that were occupied and oppressed, forced into submission by the vast and all-powerful Roman Empire. So, for Peter and his Jewish community, he lived in a binary world. There were Jews, and there were all those others called the Goim, the Gentiles. The gospel writers tell us that Peter spent three years with Jesus, almost night and day. Peter became a part of Jesus' inner circle. Can you imagine what that meant? Highs and lows, and there were several lows. Perhaps the lowest point was when Peter, overcome by fear, denies Jesus three times, when Jesus' life is on trial. But after Jesus' bodily resurrection and ascension and the Holy Spirit's empowerment at Pentecost, Peter becomes a different person. (laughs) He boldly speaks to the very same people who crucified Jesus and many who have perhaps heard Him deny Jesus and he becomes the boldest preacher of the gospel imaginable. Now, while the bodily resurrection was a game-changer for Peter, clearly the ultimate one, Luke, the writer of Acts, describes another paradigm-shattering game-changer for Peter in Acts chapter 10. Now, remember, Peter was deeply committed as an obedient god fearer and lover of the Scriptures to a lifestyle set forth in Old Testament law. And now he has a divine vision. In fact, he's told this three times, so he doesn't miss it. In the vision, and you might look at Acts chapter 10 to get more of the texture. I don't have time to unpack all that. But God tells him this kosher food purity restriction is no longer a requirement. That through the gospel, Christ is building His church a new community of Jews and Gentiles as one body. Peter describes in Acts, and Luke quotes him, the very shattering truth. God says to Peter, quote, Acts, book of Acts, what I have made clean, do not call unclean or common. God says to Peter, and Peter's stunned, but he gets the message. And Peter concludes in the book of Acts chapter 10, truly, a straight statement of intensity, truly, I now understand that God shows no partiality. Peter understood that the gospel transcended all sociological and ethnic differences and even cherished religious practice. He understood for the very first time that the gospel made no room, zero, for ethnic or religious superiority or partiality. What he understood in new illumination is that the ground was level at the foot of the cross for all Jewish and Gentile sinners in need of a Savior. So much so, and we don't know exactly the chronology, But I would suggest it is after this event from a scholarly standpoint, we're not positive, but the gathering in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 of the first major crisis of the church, the first council, Peter, Jewish Peter, becomes the bold advocate for Gentile Christians to not have to be circumcised or maintain strict kosher diets. Yet, what is stunning is here in Galatians, and we don't know exactly the sequence of timing, Peter is backpedaling on it. And Paul gets in his face, big time. Look at verses 12 to 13. For before certain men came from James, that's a group in Jerusalem, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to this circumcision group. People were going to add to the gospel. Other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas, Barnabas was one of the heroes of the New Testament, even Barnabas was led astray. That's the idea. See, once Peter understood that the gospel was not partial to Jews or Gentiles, that the gospel was radically inclusive and completely leveled the playing field, Peter got it. And his belief and his behavior came together. And he included the Gentiles. He changed his lifestyle. But Paul tells us now that out of fear of other Jewish believers from Jerusalem who are adding a Jewish component of requirement to the gospel, Peter now changes his conduct, even though he knows it's dead wrong. Now, notice this word, and English, it's soft, but the early text, original text, is strong. It's the phrase translated in your Bible, something like, separated himself. The idea is not sort of just not being there, kind of leaving. It is bold rejection. It is having nothing to do with somebody. Why? This is the Apostle Peter, the closest disciple to Jesus, perhaps. Why would he do such an unthinkable thing? The Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ, even though he knew it was wrong, dead wrong. Hmm. Why would Peter engage in exclusive behavior when the gospel called for inclusive behavior? We don't know all why. The text does give us one indication. It is the word fear. And let's face it, When we fear what others think, isn't that true? Fear makes cowards of of us all. Who of us have not faced peer pressure, maybe even this week? And when we face peer pressure, possibility of rejection or ridicule, we, pastors included, do crazy, dumb, and very wrong things. Think with me for a moment. How many of you, how many of us, As you look back at your week this week, have been hypocritical in what you've said or done or not done. Maybe it's peer pressure at school or at work, leads to compromise your Christian convictions and morals in order to fit into the crowd. It's all too easy to behave one way with colleagues at school or at work, but to behave very differently in a church small group or with friends at church, isn't it? So what was going on in Peter's head? (laughs) We don't know for sure. The text doesn't give us explicit guidance. But my hunch is, because we're all woven of that same hypocritical cloth, are we not, that perhaps his mind is brilliant at rationalization. I think that's my one moment of brilliance. How about you? We are really great at rationalizing our behavior. Some of the early church fathers who translated this text and commentaries had the sense, it was their subjective observation, that Peter is rationalizing his behavior to keep peace in the church. Don't know. Didn't want a divisive schism. Several early church fathers say that. Fascinating. But perhaps there's also, in Peter's heart, a lingering racial or ethnic prejudice instilled in his cultural upbringing from this high. We simply don't know. What we are given is his conduct, not his motivation, primarily. And his conduct, Paul is saying, is betraying the very transforming gospel he had experienced personally and boldly preached. Do you see that? So here is this idea that we must not miss. At the end of the day, friends, it wasn't Paul ultimately that was confronting Peter. It was the gospel itself. So how did the gospel, second question, confront Peter's hypocrisy? Look at me at verse 14. Notice the contrast. But when I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter again, in front of them all, and you should read this with a sense of intense incredulity. You are a Jew, for goodness sakes, is what I would add. Yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then? You can just hear Paul just pulling his hair out. How is it then you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? So woven in this text is glaring hypocrisy, and it's twofold. Notice the twofold logic. First, Peter's exclusionary behavior, Paul says in the text, violates the gospel itself, which is inclusive of both Jew and Gentile. But notice specifically here, there is a logical inconsistency. Secondly, his exclusionary behavior is glaringly and logically inconsistent. Uh, If I may uh, paraphrase this, it's like basically, Peter, what do you mean? You are free to live like a Jew or a Gentile, but Gentiles are only free to live like Jews? You get that sense? Come on. That's the idea. So let me ask you, if you were on a quiz about the Bible, and some of you have had a lot of Bible quizzing or background, some of you are newer to the Bible, if I were to ask you how many times... Peter denied Jesus, what would be your first answer? Usually it'd be three. And that's true in the garden. But there are hints here in the language used and the echoing used where I think, my opinion, not uninformed but not for sure, that Paul is saying to the Galatian churches, here goes Peter again. Peter is denying Jesus again because he is denying the gospel. Paul is saying when you deny the gospel, you deny Jesus. And notice the linkage of fear on both both times, in the garden and in Antioch. These texts are rich and important, but sometimes it's hard to kind of grasp on. A New Testament scholar, I think, gives greater clarity to what Paul is saying here. And he says, here's the reason why Peter was in the wrong or stood condemned. It was not, hear me carefully, a case of Peter simply making an honest mistake. The difficulty was that he gradually gave in to pressure exerted by the legalizers. That's people who are saying it's Jesus plus something. Even though he knew what was right. In other words, Peter played the hypocrite. The same Peter who had denied his Lord for fear of a maidservant in a garden now denies him again for fear of the circumcision party. That's the legalizers. That's exactly right. See, Peter's hypocrisy turns sisters and brothers in Christ back into others. And this, Paul is saying is a direct violation of the gospel. Because at the foot of the cross, there are no others. Whether that other is a different gender, or race, or ethnicity, or poor, or wealthy, or educated, or less educated, or young, or old, and you can give all the sociological stratigraphy you want. At the foot of the cross, we are all on level ground. Foot of the cross, there's zero room for human superiority, for we are family. The once other is now a brother. How did Peter respond to Paul's rebuke? We don't know in Galatians. There's no hint of it. We don't know, but we can get a pretty good idea in Peter's writings. I encourage you to read First and 2 Peter. That's also two books in the Bible and the end of the New Testament. We get a glimpse of his humble repentance and his changed life. Let me just give you a couple little hints. And look at this week if you want. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 12, Peter admonishes the early churches to do what? To keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Wow. And he says in verse 9, show hospitality to one another. This Greek word hospitality means loving strangers. It's the opposite of xenophobia, which is to fear strangers. Peter got it and he teaches it in the early church. The word hospitality is so important here because it involves loving and welcoming others who are different than us. And what I think we get out of this text is the gospel transforms us in local church community to be a people and a place of radical inclusion and loving hospitality for everyone. What the gospel declares, what Paul declares here, is at the foot of the cross, we find the most welcoming place on planet Earth. Third question How does the gospel then confront our hypocrisy? Let me give two big truth takeaways. First, as we saw last week, it is Jesus plus nothing. In verses 15 through 16, Paul tells us the best way to avoid hypocrisy in our life is to have a crystal clear clarity on the gospel itself. Notice what he says We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles. Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. Specifically, this word law means the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, but also all of the Old Testament. That's how it was used. But by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have, been, have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, in the book of Galatians, Paul will introduce very rich and impregnated theological terms. We are going to, Lord willing, unpack those more fully because they are really, really important in the weeks ahead. But let me give just a couple of foundational ideas to begin the conversation. First, the word justified is a legal term and how Paul uses it here. Where a guilty person in the Roman Empire is declared not guilty in a court of law. You got that idea? It's a legal idea. And uh, the bad news, of course, is as sinners, we all stand before a holy, righteous God, guilty, worthy of His righteous wrath. We are separated from God and condemned, no matter how religious we are or non-religious we are. But the good news, of course, of the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross And He paid that penalty we could never pay, that we might be declared not guilty. We are declared not guilty by God Himself, by the holy triune God, when we place our complete trust in Jesus as our Savior and Lord. See, religious works may be good in themselves, but they have no place in God's plan for our salvation. Now, hear me carefully. Justification doesn't mean that nothing else matters. It means nothing else is meritorious. We can never, ever earn salvation and the new life in Christ it brings. Salvation is a gift of God's grace, and grace is fundamentally and antithetically opposed to any human, merit, or earning. Paul is compellingly clear here, and he writes to the Ephesians in another letter these words, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, and they all need to be brought together. For it is by grace, that means unmerited favor, you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one should boast. Now, there's no period here. For we are God's handiwork. That means God's creation. Now, newly created, a new creation, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul is reminding us that Jesus paid it all. It's Jesus plus nothing. Nothing else or no one else Is meritorious. And notice in Galatians chapter 2, he ends with a crescendo of logic of the implications of Christ's death. In the end of chapter 2, he builds his case to the saying if Jesus, if there's any other way besides Jesus and his merit, then Jesus died needlessly. The cross is a tragedy. But the cross isn't a tragedy because the cross makes it possible for us to be made right with God. Last week, we introduced a definition of the gospel, and it's important to. we're going to bring this periodically so we have clarity here. The gospel is the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which, if you trust Him above all others, saves you from sin and gives you new life. And what He means by that is new life now and forever, through all eternity. It's important for us to grasp, as Paul will unpack here in Galatians, you'll notice this, that the gospel saves us from and for. The gospel saves us from sin and the impact of sin all the way to an eternal destiny apart from Him, but the gospel saves us for a new life. Now, notice the life imagery and emphasis in verses 20 through 21 of Galatians 2. The gospel saves us from sin and death and eternal separation from God, For if righteousness could be gained through the law, what? Christ died for nothing. The gospel is about Jesus plus nothing. But the gospel is also, it's about Jesus plus anyone. And what do I mean by that? you listening? Throughout the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles declare the gospel's exclusivity. It is Jesus and no other. Jesus says Himself, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. And the apostles in Acts 4.12 say the same there is salvation in nobody else. It's only Jesus. While the gospel declares a vertical exclusivity between us and God, it also declares a horizontal inclusivity. Jesus says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. The gospel, properly understood, has vertical and horizontal implications. In Christ, we are both reconciled to God and to others, others who are different than us. See, Peter's hypocrisy was so glaring because it turned sisters and brothers back into others. And we do that too, don't we? See, there are many kinds of hypocrisy that are antithetical to the gospel. Yet one of the most blinding and damning in our culture is around racial and ethnic prejudice and the segregation and injustice it spawns. Gospel hypocrisy is tragically manifested and seen in racial prejudice. Our nation, our city, has an incredible wounded history from this. And there's so much I could say about the sin of racial prejudice, but time does not permit me to do that this morning. But let me remind us of a couple applicational truths. If we learn anything from this text in Galatians... It is that we can be, all of us can be blind to gospel hypocrisy when it comes to how we view and treat others that may be culturally or ethnically or educationally or economically or racially different than us. And we must grasp, hear it carefully, that the matter of racial prejudice is not merely a social issue. It is a gospel issue. To view oneself in any way as superior to another is gospel hypocrisy in its most egregious form. This is what Paul is saying. To view oneself in any way as superior violates the cross and what Jesus did for us. Racial prejudice violates the very bedrock of truth, not only the cross, but of creation. that We are made in God's image. Everyone is made in God's image, and of immeasurable measurable worth. John Perkins, who's one of my heroes, African-American theologian and amazing person I've met him, read much of what he's written. His story of racial pre- prejudice and oppression and what he's faced in many, many people who are African-American is compelling. John Perkins writes so rightly about the understanding of the gospel. He writes, We believe in a gospel that burns through racial and cultural barriers and reconciles people to God and to one another. So let me suggest three reflections for all of us to reflect on. First one is this Are you addressing sinful attitudes toward others? You know, in your heart of hearts, someone who's different than you looks different, a different education, different skin color. How do you engage others? What do you think? What are your heart attitudes? At the end of the day, racial prejudice, for example, is not as much about the color of one's skin as it is about the condition of one's heart. How do you view others? What goes to your mind and heart? Those of us who embrace the gospel ought to be the quickest to embrace others who are different than us. In such a racially divided culture, The local church is to be a welcoming place that is distinctively different than the world. Pastor Tim Keller writes so well and says it better than I can. He says, so one of the most crucial ways that the Christian church embodies the gospel is the unity of Christians who are different from one another economically, culturally, racially. In general, the job of the church is to show the world that people who cannot live in love and unity outside of Christ can do so in Christ, in His church. Second question, are you moving beyond cultural isolation? Many of us are deeply engaged in working and learning and loving and serving people who are much different than us, but some of us are isolated for part of a majority culture, it's easy to be isolated, to not have friends who are ethnically or racially or economically different than we are. And what happens is that isolation often breeds ignorance, misunderstanding and mistrust of others. So what about taking some initiative here? Maybe you're already doing this. I commend you if you are. But maybe you just want to be prodded a little bit in love. What about inviting others who are different than you? To join you in a sporting event, a concert, your home for dinner. Whether they are presently followers of Jesus or not. One of the great joys of Christ's community for our 30 years is we've had a long partnership with many others who are different than us. One of those partnerships we've had for many, many years is with our sister church Christian Fellowship Baptist that is predominantly an African-American congregation. Over the years, we have eaten together, built homes together, done retreats together, done mission trips together. We have become good friends and partners in the gospel. And I consider Stan Archie, the senior pastor, one of my good friends who has taught me much about what it means to serve Christ and lead in our world. As a church, we reach out to immigrants. We partner with people from Iran to China. We love God's amazing, diverse peoples of the world, not just because they are diverse, but because in Christ, we are family. We are family. Thirdly, let me ask you, are you confronting racial prejudice and injustice? Each one of us, in our relationships and places of influence, have the opportunity in Christ, in love, in kindness and compassion, to live out the gospel and confront prejudice and injustice wherever we encounter it. So how are we doing here? How are we using our influence, our gifts, our prayers, our resources to change things that need changing and to provide equal justice and opportunity for all? The prophet Micah's words are words for us today. And listen to Micah's words. What has the Lord required of you? Required. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. This requires all of us, me included, to stay curious, to stay humble, to have a posture of learning and unlearning, to seek God on a daily basis of how we can sacrificially follow Christ in loving others everywhere God takes us during the week. This year marks the 50th anniversary of the tragic assassination of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Dr. King's Christian conviction and undaunted courage called the church to repentance for gospel hypocrisy. And he urged the nation to march down the gospel road to righteousness and justice and to provide equal opportunity for everyone. But what motivated Dr. King most was the gospel itself and its transformation. For Dr. King grasped what we must all grasp here this morning, that at the foot of that cross, We are all on level ground. The foot of the cross, there are no others. There are just brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Lord, grant to each of us greater clarity of the gospel. Forgive us for our gospel hypocrisy. Grant to us courage and humility to embrace needed repentance for perhaps wrongful attitudes, wrongful words, for the sins of omission and the sins of commission. Lord, may this place be the most welcoming place on earth. Grant to us the commitment to seek the common good, to seek justice and equal opportunity for all. For only in following Jesus can any of us love his beautiful creation made in his image. So Lord, show us the hidden places that need change. Because Christ is worthy. The gospel is worthy. And his people are worthy. For in Christ, we are his family.